the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. Music provided by the 48th Highlanders of Canada. Today's guest, Warrant Officer Class 2, Paul Baines, MC. But when I looked at myself and what I was doing, I was basically had nothing going for me. So I had a big hard look at myself and hadn't really done anything sort of impressive or something to make my family feel proud of me. So I think it was the next day I went to the Army Careers Office and I just went in and said, I want to be in the Coldstream Guards, I want to be a sniper. Welcome to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. I am very pleased to continue the custom of altering the format of the Canadian Military History Podcast for the April 1st episode. This is something I picked up from other podcasters that alter their format slightly on the 1st of April. And it's just another little treat for the listener, something different, something out of the ordinary. My good friend Scott Patterson used to say, we have customs, we have traditions, we have the things that we do. He changed the word things to something else. I just kept it family friendly. I get into this argument quite a bit about calling something a custom or calling something a tradition. So I'm going to call this a custom. It could potentially be a tradition because I did pick it up from someone else and I am continuing it, which is kind of my definition of a tradition, something that you didn't actually start. I find that a lot of people believe that, well, because we've done something 11 times and we've done 11 years in a row, suddenly it's now a regimental tradition. So we'll just call this a custom, the custom of altering the format on the 1st of April for the listeners and continuing the show. So with that alteration, I'm going to be going across the ocean and I'm going to be interviewing a guest from the British Army, a person that I worked with while deployed in Sierra Leone on the Canadian named Op Sculpture. However, we called it IMAT, the International Military Advisory and Training Team. This was a multinational task force led by the British Army, composed of members of the Royal Navy and the Royal Air Force. We also had a Canadian contingent composed of members of the Canadian Army, the Royal Canadian Navy, and the Royal Canadian Air Force. We had members of the U.S. Army. We had members of the Jamaican Defense Force. There were also members of the Army of Ghana. And we were told there were Nigerians on our task force, but we never actually saw them. So that was interesting. I'm going to get back to this in a quick second when I introduce the guest. Before I get on to introducing the guest, I want to touch on some feedback for the show. I haven't discussed or mentioned any feedback in quite some time. So November 12, 2015, quite a while ago. I'm not even sure if I've covered this one already, but this was feedback that was left on iTunes. So it was from Jamie Larner. Jamie, I hope I'm not doubling up your feedback, but nevertheless, he says, keep up the great work. He posted that on November 12, 2015 and gave me a five-star rating. Thank you very much for that. And just a quick reminder, if you choose to go on iTunes, you can locate the podcast and on there, there is a little button there, a switch called Ratings and Reviews. When you leave a rating and review on iTunes, what that does is it makes it easier for people just like you to find the show. So please take that two minutes, five minutes, ten minutes, whatever, and find that Ratings and Reviews button on the iTunes feed for the show and give me a little bit of feedback. On the actual webpage that supports the show, I got one entry in my guest book. It's from Mark Dauphin. It says, great idea. Thank you for doing this, Mike. And this was left on the 6th of March. So that's fairly recent. Thank you very much, Mark, for leaving that feedback in the guest book. 
Once again, you can find the guest book at www.canadianmilitaryhistorypodcast.ca. If you leave a note in the guest book, I do have to approve it so it doesn't appear right away, but I do get to it as quickly as I can. As soon as I get a notification, I try to make sure that your guest book entry gets posted as quickly as possible. And all I do is I make sure that spam and advertising stays off the website and doesn't interfere with your enjoyment of the website or your enjoyment of the show. Now, speaking about new listeners to the show, if you're interested in trying to attract somebody to the show or you're trying to describe the podcast to somebody else, someone you think might be interested in listening, what I'm going to suggest is you go to my YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search for Canadian Military History Podcast, and there are two promo videos on there that basically outline what the show is all about. There's some images to support what's being said during the audio portion of the YouTube video and they're quite easy to find. The first video is just two minutes and 19 seconds. The second video is a minute and a half. So if you do have a friend, a colleague, somebody that you think would like to enjoy the show, please go ahead and invite them to check out the video on YouTube. That'll give them a quick idea of what the show is all about, and then they can make an informed decision whether or not they want to subscribe, and hopefully they will subscribe. I would very much like to cover the feedback that I've received on Facebook. Unfortunately, that would be a show in itself. So many comments are left on Facebook and so many likes are on the page. Every single day I get new likes on the page and that keeps me motivated and on track to produce a good show for you. What I'm hoping is each one of those likes is actually a listener to the show and not just somebody who happens to like my Facebook feed. So hopefully everybody that's liking and commenting on the Facebook pages that I create are also listeners and enjoying the show. I don't really have the ability to track demographics as who's listening to the show. I can only use other means like how many hits I have on my website and how many likes I have on Facebook to give me some sort of an idea as to how much this podcast is being listened to, tracked, or appreciated. However, I don't really know how many downloads I have or how many listeners I have. That really doesn't detract or take away from anything. That's just a offhand comment. Now, getting back to the guest today, like I said, I am following the custom of changing the format for the 1st of April episode. Today's guest is WO2 Paul Baines, MC, from the British Army, specifically the Coldstream Guards. Now, understanding that I alter the format for the 1st of April, and that is my usual custom, I chose Paul because I had the opportunity to work with him in Sierra Leone, as I mentioned during the earlier part of the intro, but I found him to be a very dedicated professional soldier. As he gets on to describe in his own recollection of his period of service, he's not one of those hard charger types, mean, aggressive types. But he's definitely somebody that you want to get to know, somebody you want to get to know better, a person that you definitely want to work with as soon as you meet him, and somebody who will always make you laugh regardless of the circumstance. He'll always find the humor in whatever is going on. And I genuinely appreciated my time that I spent working alongside, at the time, Color Sergeant Paul Baines. And then he was subsequently promoted to the rank of W02, or as he prefers to be called, Company Sergeant Major. A quick little anecdote about Paul, just to reveal a little bit of his character. As I said, he's the type of person that you really want to work with, you want to get to know better. And one of the roles that he performed in Sierra Leone was mentoring and supervising the conduct of infantry training in Africa. In that role, he would mentor and supervise the platoon commander. He would mentor and supervise the platoon 2IC. And in that role, he would also mentor and supervise the company quartermaster sergeant. The company quartermaster sergeant in Sierra Leone was a person by the name of Staff Sergeant Dominic Kamara. 
Now, Dominic Camara was an honest man. He made sure that whatever was assigned to go to the soldiers would be given to the soldiers. Whatever equipment was tasked for the training of those soldiers would go to that training of those soldiers. Now, I can speculate as to what happened and maybe draw my own conclusion. I'm not really going to jump out and say it out loud. But Dominic was a very honest man and he was working within a very corrupt system. And at the conclusion of the ITAT portion, which was the infantry training advisory team, when that portion of IMAT closed out, Dominic died. I could use another verb to describe what happened to Dominic. Needless to say, Dominic was an honest man working for Color Sergeant Paul Baines, and as soon as Paul Baines and his team stepped away, Staff Sergeant Dominic Kamara died. The local tradition says that he was shot with a witch gun. That's how they described his demise. We, on the other hand, independently formed our own opinions about what happened to poor Dominic Kamara. This episode is not about Dominic, but perhaps we could dedicate this episode to him and his honest, dedicated, and loyal service. Here's my interview with W02 Paul Baines. Company Sergeant Major Baines, welcome to the podcast. Good morning. So you and I first met, Paul, when I arrived in Sierra Leone in 2011 to work on the International Military Advisory and Training Team, and it was the evening of the Robbie Burns dinner when I finally arrived, so it was January 2011. Yeah, that seems a long time ago now. It's actually five years ago, practically to the date. I mean, we're into March now, but I remember marking the actual fifth anniversary of my arrival in Sierra Leone. And the ironic thing was that as the former RSM of the Toronto Scottish, the people in Sierra Leone believed that I would be too tired to attend the Robbie Burns dinner. And I always thought that was very ironic that they thought (laughs) I wouldn't be able to attend the dinner. I do remember that we make quite a big thing about the Burns and even though I'm not Scottish, throughout the British Army we seem to celebrate it quite a big thing. I think of being in Sierra Leone the temperatures were quite high and a lot of humidity, but I've got a feeling I wore a suit and tie and shirt. Right. But, um, but other people were dressed up in uh, fancy dress costumes like Highlander and Mel Gibson from Braveheart and things like that. <laughs> It's all a bit tongue-in-cheek sometimes. The format is lots of poems get read and people stand up and say their pieces. It's a good night and all. Absolutely. I'm sure there's a good kilt maker in Sierra Leone that people can rent a kilt from. Now, you were assigned to the ITAT portion of IMAT. So that was always an interesting little game with the acronyms. Yeah. So Infantry Training Advisory Team. That's right. Yeah, that's it. And it was a legacy from what was there before. Obviously, the, the reason for us being there was at first was to train and then it moved on to just advising the people that were training. That's right. The ITAP was sort of the last remaining hands-on team of people that actually trained or tried to train. <laughs> or supervised the training that was going on at the school. Yeah. It was more of an overwatch of really what was going on because, you know, Africa's a different place. Absolutely. So, I sent you the questions in advance. Are you all set? Yeah, I haven't got them in front of me, but I'll wing it. <laughs> Sounds good. It's the best way. So, why don't you tell the listeners why you chose to join the British Armed Forces? Because I wasn't that channeled when I was at school or growing up. I was probably, I wasn't a bad kid and I wasn't, I wasn't like naughty, sort of being locked up, that sort of child. But I was a young boy like to get into a bit of mischief now and again and was going in a sort of a wayward direction and after leaving school I didn't have any sort of thing I wanted to do for a few years I sort of just ambled through jobs so I got to a point I saw a girl on the street that I went to school with 
And I recognised her and she recognised myself and I waved to her. It was before Facebook and social media at the time and I managed to get her phone number. And I phoned her up and asked her out and she flat turned me down. And at the time, I was a bit shocked by it. But when I looked at it, looked at myself and what I was doing, I was basically had nothing going for me. She was sat there, an independent young woman in her car, going about her business. I was walking on the street, looking at her as an outsider, sort of trying to get her attention. There's some boy that went to school with her with nothing going on for me. So I had a big hard look at myself and again I looked towards my family and hadn't really done anything sort of impressive or something to make my family feel proud of me. So I think it was the next day I went to the Army Careers Office and one of my friends had been around the house and they'd left a flyer for the infantry and for the Coldstream Guards at my house and I went through it. And I had no military background, no family were military. I knew nothing about the military, how it worked, all the different corps, all the different regiments. And I just went in and said, on the back of this flyer, there was job descriptions and one of them was sniper. And it all seemed glamorous and right <laughs> in the movies and stuff. And I just went, no, that's what I want to be. Walked in the office and said, I want to be in the Coldstream Guards. I want to be a sniper. And then here we have the story. <laughs> from there. So what year was that? Uh, that was 1995. Because obviously when you join the army, you don't join straight away and you have to go through a vetting process. And I think it was like September, October time. By the time I'd been vetted and gone through and they accepted me, it was nearly Christmas. I went and got a part-time job as a waiter in a holiday camp to keep me out of trouble and to earn myself some money. And it looked better that I was working. Right. And in the new year, in the March, I started training at Purbright in the south of England. Now, what was the world like when you joined? What was going on? I can't really remember because then I wasn't really that much aware of world events. I was living in my own bubble in Torquay <laughs> in Devon. I wasn't really aware of what was going on, but I knew that Northern Ireland was happening. Northern Ireland was a big thing for us. Right. And the first Gulf War had just been and finished because that was in 91. So it was about five years before. So I remember seeing all the soldiers and the troops on the TV. But that was it, really. And then you did touch a little bit about what you were like when you joined. Is there anything else that you can remember about what you were like when you joined? Because you spoke about how you were looking for a purpose in life. Anything else? Yeah, I was. I had a lot of energy. A lot of energy that wasn't being really channeled in the right direction. And I look at a lot of my friends now, as we were older, and some of them that have gone that way, probably stayed in trouble when they would have made good soldiers as well. Because I think sometimes as a child, or as a, as a young teenager anyway, that you grow up and you don't have that much direction. If you can be channeled in the right direction, there's a, a lot of my friends that would have made exceptional soldiers if only they take it, made that jump and come over and join the military. They're all very scared of being told what to do, but actually right. it's not about being told what to do. It's about discipline and knowing that what you can do yourself. And if you can channel that properly, you can be all you can be. <laughs> I remember the That's end. a different military. <laughs> Anyhow. Yeah, yeah, but we don't know that as that be all you can be line from the American military. It's not well known in the British Army. Right. So I still like to use that over here because it seems, seems like I'm being really creative when I'm not. I'm just copying the American. That's right. So, Paul, can you tell me what your most memorable experience in the British Armed Forces was or your greatest achievement? I've been very, very lucky. I have done so many things. I couldn't honestly say that I have one thing that goes down as my most memorable. Because in the Coldstream Guards and in the Household Division, obviously, we're a dual role. We're infantry and ceremonial, and they are equal. Right. I have done every single ceremonial duty in every rank except the one I was in when I left the army on every single ceremonial post. That's Buckingham Palace, St. James's Palace. It's the Tower of London. That's Windsor Castle. I've done every single post possible and every rank. 
I have done Troop in the Colour, only once done Troop in the Colour, but when I did Troop in the Colour, I was the senior sergeant. I held the colour, I brought it on, and it was on the Queen's Diamond Jubilee birthday. Right. So it was a really big one. And it was our troop, carried the colour on, I handed it over to the Sergeant Major. My mother was interviewed on TV. Hmm. Uh, my parents were in the stand. My girlfriend was in the stand at the time, but was now my wife. Yeah, it was massive. And I'd just been awarded the military cross only maybe two years before. So I was wearing a military cross and they made a big thing of it. And it was, yeah, that was great. But then that was the ceremonial stuff. Operationally, I've done covert surveillance on terrorists in Northern Ireland. I've, I've done overt patrols where constantly in Afghanistan being contacted. I've been to Iraq. I've been very lucky. My job spec within the army, being in the infantry, and what I chose to be, it was probably the best job I could have chose. And if you were going to do it, it would be the creme of the creme of your regiment. I've just been very lucky. Very, very lucky. Right. Now, the military cross, you received that just before I arrived in Sierra Leone then, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I came back from Afghanistan. I think it was it was early summer, 2010. And then within six weeks... I had my leave and I was off to Sierra Leone for over a year. And while I was in Sierra Leone, the um, honour and awards list was published. And I, I, I think it was about three months after I'd been there, I was awarded the Military Cross. So I flew back to the UK, was awarded the Military Cross by Her Majesty the Queen. But was four of my friends that also got Military Crosses. And we are all from the same platoon, the recce and the sniper platoon, all from the same patrol base. One of my friends I've known since I joined the army, another one of them has got out, but he was in the same platoon. And then another one of my friends was a platoon commander who was actually awarded it posthumously. So it was a really big thing for us. And you never heard of like four military crosses being awarded to one patrol base. Right. To one battalion, let alone one patrol base. Absolutely. So how did you and your platoon end up earning the military cross? It was very early on in the tour. I was initially with a number three company, a number one company, because when you relief in place, obviously you go in different companies. You don't all go as one. Right. You go slowly. And the number one company had been sent over from the UK to Afghanistan about two weeks before. And while they were on the range, they had someone killed by an IED and they moved into an area in Babaji in uh, the Gresh Valley. It was right on the edge of the forward line of enemy troops. The summer before there'd been an operation and where they stopped and put this patrol base, number one company moved into it. And they started taking casualties very quickly and on the range on their pre-deployment training there was one of the section commanders the sniper section commanders had been injured and he was it was the same rank as me so i flew out a little bit earlier and replaced him in number one company so number one company had already been in position about two weeks before i got there they'd taken maybe six gunshot wounds i think someone from one of the corps the engineers that had his legs blown off it was a real nasty place in afghanistan right and we were just on a regular patrol i was attached to mr dazel the guy that ended up getting the posthumous military across and was patrolling across an open field and the leader of the patrol was going through an alleyway and we'd already had a multiple of 12 men already gone through the alleyway in a compound and we were escorting the special forces of the Afghan National Army what I call the Tiger team into an area that, that they were going to interview someone or do something in some area something to do with a, a mosque and it had to be cleared and the cover man for the Valum guy at the beginning of the patrol that was using the metal detector because everywhere we went we had to have a guy at the front with a metal detector of Valum oh. Okay. But in the area that we were, all the devices in the ground, or the IEDs, were no metal content. Or they used to call it low metal content, but it was actually no metal content. So the metal detectors would only find the battery pack, what was the size of about a matchbox. Right. And these were wired off somewhere. So as they're patrolling through this alleyway, the cover man for the Valum guy at the front, he initiates an IED and loses a leg up to his knee. 
all I saw was this puff of smoke come up in the air and you heard the explosion. If you've been there a while, you know that noise in the ground when an IED. And at the time, we weren't being hit by any sort of small arms or anything. So I ran forward to the platoon commander who was near the front, asked what was going on. He told me that quickly, briefly, what had happened. I ran up to where the casualty was and started dealing with the casualty. Some men come out of the compound and the medic came out. And we started um, putting tourniquet on his knee and giving him morphine. I gave him morphine, etc. Just general stuff. We know these. We drilled all the time in it. We know exactly what to do. We put the guy on the stretcher and I was on the front right of the stretcher and one of my friends was on the front left and another one of my friends who was a platoon sergeant was on the rear left and then the new guy, a new guy who just come out to, as a battlefield casualty replacement was behind me on the rear of the stretcher and we just started carrying this guy back down the alleyway and now this alleyway had had like a whole multiple of 12 men walk up it and half of the multiple another multiple could walk up it until they initiate this IED so as we're walking back down we initiate another IED the platoon sergeant on the rear of the stretcher initiates it he loses both legs the guy on the stretcher loses his other leg and everyone on the stretcher except me gets some of it. I got a little bit of shrapnel on the back of my neck and the back of my legs and shoulder and stuff. We just got blown in the air. My rifle got blown off my back and stuff. And when I came to, I was looking at the platoon commander and he was just asking me what was going on. And then it was just like, we just rolled into our drills. I tourniqueted the limbs up of the guy that was on the stretcher and we didn't want to bring anyone else into the area. So I picked up this guy and threw him sort of over my shoulder and carried him across a small bridge into the field and the Pedro helicopter came down that was the American Kazivak helicopter. We chucked him and the platoon sergeant on um, the stretcher and then we sort of, I'm sorry, on the helicopter and then we got the other casualties out and it all, it all went very smoothly. And then I basically took control of the multiple along with the platoon commander. He was in a bit of shock because he'd just seen sort of like two of his men wiped out and about three of them with shrapnel injuries. And I just took control of one of the Valen guys and then led us all back to the patrol base. There was a little bit more to it. Then we started taking some enemy fire. There was rounds coming over the top of our head. And there, was a, there was a little bit of a confusion, but it was just general stuff that would happen on a regular basis. But there was a lot of people involved. It wasn't just me. But right. Because the platoon commander recognised me taking control of it because he lost a lot of non-commissioned officers, a platoon sergeant, a lance corporal and the section commander. He was down on non-commissioned officers. He sort of recognised me for it and got back in and then told my company commander at the time what I'd done because I'd taken some shrapnel injuries. The helicopter came down and picked me up two hours later and took me to hospital. And I went to hospital and unfortunately, John, the platoon sergeant who lost both legs, he died in hospital in front of us. We said goodbye to him. And then the guy that was on the stretcher actually lived called Ben and he's still living now in Scotland so that was it really I know there's a lot there but that was generally what happened John the platoon who got killed I'd known him all my career Ben who lost both legs was on the stretcher I'd known yeah since he joined the army the young lad who stood behind me on the stretcher I hadn't known he'd only just come out like, but he was on his first patrol when he got blown up and then the, my mate who was opposite me on the stretcher I'd known all my career as well yeah. so Paul who is your greatest influence or who is the most memorable character that you've encountered one person in particular really because you just meet so many and you, you're not a finished product when you join the army but not even really a finished product when you leave but you're a lot more improved than when you started and as you meet people on the way you take from them what you feel that you would want to be like can you understand that absolutely without a doubt that's why that question's there (laughs) yeah so i always remember one of my friends he's my friend now but he used to give me a lot of as well um, a lad called Chrissy Brett, he was a warrant officer as well. He got out about maybe two or three years before I did. I spent my whole career with him. I mean, he used to bully me when I was younger and stuff. But he had this knack for he was a hard, nasty man that you never crossed. But he never actually raised his hand to you. The fear of it was enough. Right. But it wasn't really the fear of getting hit or beaten by him. 
it was the fear of disappointing him. Certainly. Because when you disappointed him, you felt really bad for doing it. Well, I did. That was what he made me feel. Other people, he might have just scared into submission. <laughs> but me, he felt like I disappointed him, like a fatherly figure. And when I got dined out recently by the my sergeant's mess, I did a big thank you went out to him and I invited him down. And he was like a sort of surrogate father while I joined. So he's probably my one of my biggest influences. But as I said, you, you meet lots of people. I meet sometimes, I meet like young soldiers who just joined the army that I see have got lots of potential and I see things they do and think, oh, that's quite good. Yeah, I might try that myself. So yeah, you feed from everyone. Absolutely. Are there any memorable characters in the Coldstream Guard that you can't stop thinking about? Well, I can't stop thinking about, but I'm trying <laughs> to transition myself into being a civilian in the best way possible because I see a lot of people having problems with it, adjusting to being civilians. And it helps that I've got a really understanding wife and she wasn't privy too much of my stuff I did in the military. I wasn't with her for a great deal of time. And I think people have met. Yeah. You don't realise how much time you've got when you're in the army. You've got a lot of time. Right. Yeah, you've got a lot of time to wake up in the morning and banter with your mates and go and see them and you go to the gym and chill out and relax. And you're busy when you're in operations or training or on ceremonial duty. But in all, you have quite a bit of time to enjoy yourself. When you're a civilian, everything's very rushed and you're trying to do things as much (laughs) as you can. And you understand. Yeah, absolutely. So, Paul, we're on the final question. What is the greatest challenge you had to overcome in your service? I want to say that last tour of Afghanistan because it was just everything that I trained for right from the very beginning. Everything they told me and said I'd have to do, I put into practice on that final tour of Afghanistan. Right. Because it was so horrific and so hard to take men out on the ground every day, not know whether you're going to come in with them or not, and walk in with a guy in front of you, a metal detector, knowing that the route that you chose and the areas that you went to and the decisions that you made would change people's lives and change your life and the pressure that we were on to accomplish our goals but still be as professional as we could it was phenomenal but i wouldn't really answer the question you're asking because i think it's more to do with my character as a person is quite i'm not soft but i'm not you meet a lot of people in the army that are very aggressive and wow, I'm not really like that. I'm more of, I wouldn't be this, I'm not the sort of person that goes out, gets drunk, goes downtown fighting, causes problems. I wouldn't be the, I'd be the first person to stand up for myself or the first person to stand up for someone else. But I wouldn't necessarily be the most aggressive person who would be at the front kicking off. So when you're in the army and you're working in a very alpha male environment, you're working with lots of people that are like that. So if you're seen as weak, you can sometimes have the advantage taken of you. So with being the character I am and with working in that male environment, I had to be a person that would inspire people to do things without being aggressive. Right. You understand what I mean? Absolutely. Well, mainly because I know who you are. Yeah. And I've had the pleasure of working with you. So that's why I know what you mean. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I would have my kit in a certain way that people think, yeah, he looks the dogs. Yeah, he looks awesome. His kit looks good. He wears it well. He he is a good shot. Yeah, he's fit. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? I had to try and be good at what I was doing rather than be a a bully. That's the wrong word. But some people you meet in the army that are very authoritarian. That's what they're like. And it's natural to them. This isn't very natural to me. So I had to find an avenue that I could inspire people and get people to do things that they didn't want to do because I got people to do things they didn't want to do, like go into areas and clear through areas with valens and mine detectors when they were under enemy fire 
because I'd inspired them to do it. And that's not something that just comes naturally. And it's something that I learned not from right at the beginning, but over a time period. It's ironic that it took me quite a bit of time to learn it. But by the time I really needed to know while we were going to Afghanistan and it was real war fighting, I had semi sort of mastered it so I could get what I needed out of people. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. That's really what leadership is all about, getting people to do what the leader wants in the manner desired by the leader and whatever tools you can apply to make that happen. It was ironic that I learned it just before I needed to really do it. (laughs) (laughs) It was just uncanny the way that it worked out. So, Paul, we've come to the end of the four questions. What are you doing right now? What's keeping you busy? Well, I'm doing a plumbery apprenticeship. I'm hoping to go into business with my brother in my construction business, doing up and selling properties because me and my wife are just trying for, for children. She's 30, I'm 40. I know it's quite late normally. People start a lot, a lot earlier. But I don't. I never want to have children in the army because I always saw my friends being away from their kids and it wasn't sort of what I wanted to do. So now that I'm out of the army, I want to be able to have a little bit more time to see my kids grow up when we have them. Right. I want to put myself in the best position possible. And I want to go into construction with my brother but I need to have some skill to bring to the party. Right. So I'm learning to be a plumber because he's a builder, plaster, sort of roofer, um, but he doesn't do that much plumbing. So once I've learned the skill, then I'm going to go into construction with him and I'll be self-employed my own hours, so I'm not governed by my, by a boss. That's my, that's my intention anyway. That's my right. plan. But at the moment, I'm in four days a week plumbing and not really having much time for anything else. Well, being a plumber on new construction is much more desirable than being a plumber on existing construction. So <laughs> that's probably a good avenue oh, if you want to be a plumber. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's, it's good. It's, um, when you've been shooting and blowing things up for, all, for 20 years, actually to bring something to the party that you're building something and seeing something at the end of it, that's, it's quite satisfying. Absolutely. Now, I understand you've written a book. I haven't written a book. What it was is that when I left the army, well, when I was in my last job at, before I left the army, I was at the recruiting warrant officer. I went into it full on because I knew that I was going to be leaving and I wanted a sort of legacy. So within a year, I'd improved the social media and we, we doubled our recruiting and we had a really successful year of it and, and we, went, we did really well. And my last thing was I wanted a commemorative album called To Commemorate Our Time on Operations in Afghanistan because we've been there 10 years. And in those 10 years, even though we'd only done three tours as a battalion, we'd had loads of augmentees and individuals go away and platoons go away with different regiments so we covered the 10 years fully as a regiment so what we did is we were going to make a photo album of images to look at to show in a, in a book really nice really nicely done and it was more of giving the costume guards exposure for recruiting right and for documenting the time we went there or spent there and that's available to the public or only members of the Coldstream guards well at first it was just going to be available to the Coldstream guards but it went it started to go bigger than that and when we started to compile the stories together, we realised that it was it was a massive thing. So we got, we got a grant from the regimental headquarters and we went into it full on. So now it's available from the Coldstream Guards. And if you go to coldstreamguards.org.uk and look on the shop, go on to, you'll find it. It's called 10 Years in Afghanistan, Guardsman Stories. And it's a collection of 42 stories written by 
just over 30 authors dating back to Herrick 4, it was like 2004, I think, right up to when we just did our last tour in 2015 or 2014. And in the back of the book, it's got all the obituaries to the people that we lost, and it's got every single Coldstream Guard that's been awarded um, Afghanistan OSM medal in the back listed in alphabet and chronological order with all credits in there. There's a lot more to it. The images are awesome. It's got like blow-up maps of where people were. The stories lead for an individual as a guardsman being shot in a helmet while on patrol and wearing the same helmet for two days until he come back <laughs> in roll base and exchange his helmet to a lieutenant general's view on why we were there and what we were doing to uh, my story was on casualty evacuated a uh, an engineer that lost an arm and a leg we got him out of there in 11 minutes and it was like the quickest one we'd done to date and it was like textbook it was the stories are brilliant it's a really really good read and it's done with a very high quality design a very modern as well well it sounds like something that both you and the regiment can be very proud of yeah well i, I mean it's, it took 18 months to do eight months of it was done while i was in the army the 10 months was done while i was a civilian so I don't actually get any financial gain from it. it. All of the money that's raised from it goes to regimental charity. A regimental charity is a non-public fund that supports wounded soldiers and soldiers in time of need from the regiment. So it's a very good cause. Well, I think I might be interested in picking up a copy. Paul, I'd like to give you an opportunity to summarize your episode. As a young 20-year-old with no experience of the military, starting training, going to an army depot in Purbright in the south of England, I had no idea where my or where the next 20 years was going to take me. And unfortunately, I was medically discharged two years before my 22 years service because I had kidney failure whilst on a course in Brecon Beacon. I could only remember the good bits. And now I look back on it as a civilian... Um, starting my life with, with with my wife in the south of England in a, a lovely coastal resort called Torquay where I was brought up. <laughs> it feels like it happened to someone else. Right. It, it feels like, I, I look back on it now, it feels like it happened to someone else. It doesn't feel like it happened to me. I've never regretted any of it. It has been harder times sometimes where I've had to dig deep, but yeah, it's been awesome. Very, very lucky. Very lucky. Well, Paul, I consider myself very lucky to have had the opportunity to work with you in Sierra Leone. I think our nine months working together were very productive, both socially and the work part that we were forced to do every once in a while. I was genuinely looking forward to an invitation to your appointment as the Regimental Sergeant Major for the Coldstream Guards. It seems like that's not in the cards or it's not going to happen. But nevertheless, it was always a pleasure. It was always a privilege to be assigned to work with you and to have any chance to catch up with you again in a format such as this or whenever we cross paths on Facebook or any other social media. I want to thank you for taking the opportunity to do this episode. I know it's not as early in the morning as it is for me as it is for you, but uh, I don't mind getting up early in order to capture and preserve your story. Yeah, thanks very much, Mike. Yeah, it was a privilege. I really enjoy working with the Canadians over there. I mean, I was attached to you, your guys in New Brunswick for three months on a course, and that's, I, I got a taster of how the Canadian Army worked, but then it was great to meet you all who were in Sierra Leone. And although yours was a little bit of a stricter tour than that than we had, yeah, it was great to meet you. You're all very professional, and that's what going on those international sort of attachments are, are all about, meeting other people and networking. Yeah, it was a privilege. Certainly. Well, thanks again, Paul, for being on this April 1st episode of the show. And hopefully we can meet up again if ever you're in Canada or if ever I'm in the UK. Yeah, thanks very much. Stay in touch, Mike. You bet. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. 
If you did enjoy the podcast, please leave some feedback on iTunes. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send me an email at mikelacroixcmhp at gmail.com. Please let me know if you'd like me to read your comments on the air. While you're waiting for our next episode, please visit the website at www.canadianmilitaryhistorypodcast.ca or the CMHP Facebook page. If you'd like to support the podcast by making a donation, please click the PayPal link on the webpage. The next time you're considering buying something from Amazon.ca, please visit the Canadian Military History Podcast website and click on my Amazon link. A small portion of your purchase goes directly towards the support and maintenance of the podcast. However, your great price from Amazon doesn't change. All donations will go directly into the production of the podcast. All music is used with the express permission of the commanding officer. End tag music is provided by the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. Views and opinions are those of the guests of the Canadian Military History Podcast and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Mike Lacroix Productions, the Government of Canada, or the Department of National Defence. This is a Mike Lacroix Production.